Second Timothy's been on my mind since April. Um, it was in my reading plan around about mid-April. I don't know if you use a reading plan, but I would highly recommend it. Um, and as I was reading it, you, you, you find the more you read Scripture and you think, well, I've read something once or twice or whatever, and I'm familiar with it, but as you read it again, just light seems to hit it from a new angle or, or an aspect of it that, that hadn't really affected you before affects you. And uh, something that hit me in, in 2 Timothy back in April, and then I was thinking about it again last weekend. We were, we were in Edinburgh, staying in an Airbnb, always a risk. It was back to student life. <laughs> It's a dingy flat in Edinburgh. Um, but it's on, I think it was on Sunday morning I was sitting and again this, this phrase stirred in me. Uh, whenever we go away, I go dark, as Jack Barr puts it. I go radio silent. I, I basically dis, you know, do not disturb on every app I can find. Don't read messages or emails very much and, and try to, to, to lie low. And, uh, and I was doing that last weekend, and, and la- I think it was last Sunday morning. I just, just felt God stirring this within me again in, in the quietness. You know, what's the one word that you would want written over your life at the end? You know, if, if there's a stone placed in the ground uh, above your head, six feet above your head at some stage, what, what word would you want to have etched into it? What is the, is the goal for all of us as Christians? What, what adjective do we want people to describe us with? Um, the thing that hit me in 2 Timothy was that Paul, at the very end of his life, he knows he's going to get executed. He says in, in chapter 4, verse 6, that he's already been poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. If you've journeyed with Paul, if you've read Paul's letters, and if you feel the more you read the New Testament, the more you feel you get to know the guy. And as you read through 2 Timothy then, which is his last letter, you start to feel this this is a man that I've walked with and I've journeyed with, and he's now saying goodbye to me. He's now telling me that he's about to get executed. He's now telling me that that the Romans are going to turn the lights out and, and put an end to him. And it's it's a sober moment in, in the New Testament. His end has come. His departure is is near. And it's interesting to look at what's in his mind at this moment. As he writes this letter to Timothy, it's a personal letter to Timothy, but it also would have been shared with the church that Timothy led, which was the church at Ephesus. that We spent so much time with this last year. And what is it that's knocking around the head of the apostle as he sits in a cell on his own, maybe getting the odd visit from Luke, but nobody else. And what's in the forefront of his mind as he reflects back and he, as he prepares for what lies ahead? One of the things that impacted me back in April was, was a phrase that, that occurs about three times in Second Timothy. And the first time it's there is in chapter 1, verse 15. Timothy is like Paul's son in the faith. He's a, Timothy's Paul's disciple. Paul has, has taught him and led him and nurtured him and encouraged him. And he's writing this emotional final letter to him. And it says in, in verse 15 of chapter 1, You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. 
including Phygelus and Hermogenes. And that, those two words deserted me. And I thought about Paul sitting there in that prison on his own. And he's thinking about the fact that he has been deserted by those who walked with him. He goes on later in the letter in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, to say to Timothy, he's lonely and he's desperate for company. And I, I love the fact that he, do, he, he doesn't pretend he's, he's tough and he's strong and he doesn't need anyone. He says in verse 9 of chapter 4, do your best to come to me quickly. Timothy, I really need you. You know, I really need you. I really need you to come and hang out with me. I really need you to come and be with me. I'm on my own and I need your friendship. I need your company. Do your best to come to me quickly for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. Now you read about Demas in Colossians chapter 4 and he is with Paul in Colossians chapter 4. When Paul is in an earlier imprisonment and he writes the letter to the Colossians, Demas is there. You know those lists of names you get at the end of the letter that you normally ignore? Demas is there in that list. He's with Paul. And in Philemon or Philemon or whatever it is written at the same time as Colossians, Demas again is mentioned at the end. He's with Paul. In fact, he's referred to as a fellow worker. But yet when you get to 2 Timothy 4, Demas has deserted him. He's gone. Because he loved this present world. He loved, you know, we, we live in the overlap of two worlds, two ages. We live in this present age, but we have experienced the age to come. The kingdom of God has broken into this present age and there's an overlap. It's not like a horizontal line and then, you know, this present age stops and the kingdom of God begins. There's an overlap. The kingdom of God has broken in and we are to live in the reality of the kingdom of God, but Demas loved the present world more. And he loved the things that the present world had to offer him, and he deserted Paul. Twice in the letter, Paul talks about being deserted. And then, further on in, in chapter 4, verse 16, he, say, he talks about his first defense when he appeared, when he went on trial, and he says, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. Three times now, Paul, this phrase, deserted me, deserted me, deserted me. I don't know if you know Paul well enough for that to start to actually do something in you. Uh, this, this man whose, whose life and whose ministry and whose, whose mission and his, the way he wrote and the way he taught and the things he went through for the gospel and the kingdom and the sacrifices that he made. And this, at the end, is what he's writing. Now, there's other things in Second Timothy as well. It's not all desertion, but this is what just hit me. This sense of being on his own. No one came to my support. Everyone deserted me. And in between those last couple of examples of desertion, he talks about Alexander. Alexander used to be his mate. Back in Acts, it looks like Alexander was part of the team. And in verse 14, Paul says, Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. And again, Paul is writing about somebody who did him a great deal of harm. It's really sad that this is what's going on in his head at the end. All these people that have deserted him. 
Alexander is probably the same guy who in 1 Timothy chapter 1 is put out of the church. At the end of 1 Timothy 1, uh, Paul writes, Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. To hand someone over to Satan in New Testament language means to put them out of the church. And on a side note, church should be so good that to not be allowed to come is an absolute tragedy, is a devastating blow to someone. Church and fellowship and the presence of God should be so good. There's another guy in 1 Corinthians 5 who Paul hands over to Satan, puts him out of the church. I've said before that when I was a kid, to be put out of the church would have been something to celebrate because it was so awful. (laughs) But the Christian community should be so full of the presence of God and love and support and, and all things good that for someone to be told you can't come is actually devastating. But this guy Alexander turned on Paul. And it just seems to be a list of failures. It just seems to be a list of people who turned on him, who, who, who walked with him for a while and then deserted him and dumped him. This is the greatest apostle. This is the author of a big, big chunk of the New Testament. He's described by Jesus as a chosen vessel. He's in prison. He's on his own and he's deserted and he has to write to Timothy to get someone to come and spend time with him. It's tragic. What about, you know, at the end of his life, surely you would think, if you're thinking in the world's way, you'll be thinking, well, what about the, getting a big list of all the churches that he planted and, and writing that down? What about uh, a list of all the people that he led to Jesus or a head count of all the people that he led in faith and salvation? What about big buildings? What about monuments to Paul? Where is his list of achievements? Because at the end of his life, it all looks like failure because he's on his own in a prison and everyone has quit, deserted him. He has a list of achievements, and there's only one. And it's in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. And it's it's a phrase that just stirring in me last weekend and as well a couple of months ago as as I was reading this. His list of achievements is this, and I think it's three different ways of saying the same thing in verse 7 of chapter 4. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And see that phrase, I have kept the faith. That's Paul's list of achievements. I have kept the faith. In the face of desertion, opposition, hostility, disappointment, Paul does one thing. He keeps the faith. That is what we want written over our lives at the end. Faithful. Are we a faithful people? Are we faithful? Do not mix up success and faithfulness because God wants faithfulness that's what he wants and Paul at the end of his life even amidst all of these negative things he declares I have kept the faith I have run my race I have fought the fight I have kept the faith what is it that impresses you about people you know what impresses you are you impressed by people's gifts their musical skill or their speaking ability or their charisma and strength and personality or their successes. What is it that really impresses you? Because as I journey and get older, the thing that actually impresses me the most about people is faithfulness. Anyone can be a flash in the pan. 
Anyone can be an overnight sensation, a one-hit wonder. It's people who are faithful over the long haul that really impress me. Faithful. People who just stick at it, no matter what the devil chucks at them, no matter what falls apart around them, no matter what challenges and difficulties they go through, they are faithful. They stick at it. Reliable, faithful people. People who keep on believing God, who keep on serving Him faithfully, who know they are called and they don't need anything else to keep going other than the call of God. Everything else around them can fall apart, but they know they are called of God and they keep the faith. They stay faithful to that call that He has given them. I find it really hard to take when people are unfaithful to their calling. And it is so common in the church. In this last year, in this last week or couple of months, there have been some big names who have quit. Last year, there was a guy who I would have read his books a fair bit a few years ago. I'm not going to name him because I don't want to diss the guy and, and wreck his reputation. But he, he fell and he fell big time in an American church. He fell big time after 40 years. And all his books are now in the skip because I don't want to read because I know what he was doing when he was writing those books and I don't want to read them anymore. And I think of the thousands and tens of thousands that went to the church and then the millions that were influenced by the ministry and the damage that it does when somebody is unfaithful to their calling and when they quit. Also, just this week, I was reading about another guy who, who's, I have a book on the shelf at home by him, but it'll be going in the same direction. Um, and he's just declared he's no longer a Christian. And like he very, you know, if I mentioned his name, a lot of you would know his name. And he, he would have been quite sort of famous on the speaking circuit about maybe four or five years ago, particularly in America. He's one of these young, hot speakers, you know, that, that everybody wanted. And he was well esteemed in, in lots of different circles. But just basically declared on Instagram, I'm, I'm no longer a Christian. And I've left my wife. And he just turned his back on everything and apologized to all of the people who he used to challenge about their lifestyle and, and publicly apologized to them. Turned his back on his family, on his church, on his faith, walked away, quit. He cannot have the word faithful etched into his gravestone. Devastating to the people who have looked to him for leadership. Another one recently as well, um, a guy who it's more burnout rather than apostasy, but another guy who's led a church that, that, that you know I know and led the church for about 15 years and another ministry as well. And I think the guy's just completely burnt out and he's walked away from both of them. He hasn't walked away from the Lord, but he's just, he's just walked away from, from a big church and a big ministry. And how does that affect people whenever they see a lack of faithfulness to the call of God? Go to 1 Corinthians 4. Please. First Corinthians 4 talks about a servant. These are the ones who look after God's household. Ruth mentioned last week about the, the oikos or the oikonomia, the, the household, the family of God. And these, these stewards in 1 Corinthians 4 were the ones who were called to look after a household. And it says that men ought to regard as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now listen to verse 2. It is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. 
not successful. This is what I believe the Spirit stirred. And he spoke this to me before years ago. But I just last Sunday morning, just sitting there looking out the window with my Bible. And I just, just felt again that stirring. I have not called you to be successful. I have called you to be faithful. And that's all you can be. I have called you to be faithful. And the, the, the picture in verse 1 is of something that's been entrusted to someone else. I have given you this to look after. In the household in the first century, the household steward looked after the household. The master trusted him to run the household. And in a way, God has then placed a trust in us. He's put a treasure in earthen vessels. He has given us the gospel. He has given us his spirit. And he has trusted us with his church and with ministry. And how will we behave after being given that trust? Will we aim for success or will we aim to be faithful with what we've been given? I can remember praying one night over there in the, in the coffee shop in a prayer meeting, you know, Lord, we, we place Tandragee into your hands and then instantly feeling the Holy Spirit say to me, no, I've placed Tandragee into your hands for a season. I have entrusted this to you people among others. Not exclusively, as if we, you know, only us and nobody else, but just that sense. No, I've entrusted this town in this season in history to, to this people. What will we do with that trust? Will we be faithful? You know, in the world, we have a whole lot of expectations about success. In a couple of weeks' time, when I go into school, I will sit down with, with a calculator and a pen and paper and, and do lots of data analysis, and I hate it. There will be no data analysis in the kingdom of God. All right, I just hate just sitting number crunching to try and find out if we have done a fraction of a percentage better than last year. Because that's the way the world works. Always wanting more. Always wanting better, increase, more money, more results, more people, whatever. Always wanting more. And what we do is sometimes then as Christians is we import that into the church, that thinking. That success means more, increase, bigger, more people, bigger church, bigger budget, lots of programs running, lots of people joining. We read these church growth books and, and listen to audio from church growth conferences and it would absolutely devastate you listening to these sort of super successful guys. What is it that God wants his church to be? He wants us to be faithful. He wants us to be faithful. The results are up to him. We are not responsible for how people respond. We are responsible to be faithful to what God has called us to do. Are we a faithful people? In Romans 15, Paul calls us, or Romans 12, I think it is, Paul calls us to be faithful in prayer. Are we faithful in prayer? Individually and together, are we faithful in prayer? Where you just bed down for the long haul in prayer. Not just a, a, a sort of whiz-popper of a prayer meeting every now and again, but just solid, consistent prayer. People crying out to God. Are we faithful in prayer? Are we faithful in the Word? It's been good this summer. Are we faithful in the Word? Let, let me go and show you just what I was reading the other day in Jeremiah. Go to Jeremiah 28. Again, this came up in the reading plan, and it, it illustrates this point. Because it's a challenge to be faithful in the word in the, in the culture that we're living in. It's not very popular. It'd be much more popular to bend and to, to, to go a wee bit to one side or the other on the truth. To try and be popular with people. But God calls us to be faithful to his word. 
in, in Jeremiah 28, without going through all of it, in verse 2, a false prophet comes along. God's people have gone into captivity in Babylon. And a false prophet comes along called Hananiah. And he says in verse 2, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I will bring back to this place all the articles of the Lord's house and so on. So Hananiah comes and he tells the people who have just gone into captivity, This will all be over in two years, guys. It's not a big deal. It'll be grand. You know the prophet, the it'll be grand prophet, you know, he just comes and everything will be grand. It'll all be fine. Don't worry. Nothing's ever going to be hard or challenging or difficult or last any length of time. It'll all be fine. Hananiah was that sort of prophet. That's called a false prophet. You read Jeremiah 29 in verse 10. In between, Jeremiah goes to Hananiah and tells him that God hasn't sent him. But in verse, 20, verse 10 of chapter 29, everybody knows verse 11 of Jeremiah 29. Everybody and his wife and dog know Jeremiah 29, 11. But before that comes verse 10, where Jeremiah comes in with the truth and says, no, it'll not be two years. He says, it'll be 70 years. That's an unpopular word. <laughs> That's not going to make people feel good. They're not going to shout amen, hallelujah, or pat you on the back on the way out. That's a challenging word. But Jeremiah was faithful to deliver the word that God had given him, even if it was going to be unpopular. Are we faithful in the word? Are we faithful in fellowship? Lovely to see just now and again things popping up on WhatsApp to find out that a few people are going to the Indian or they're going for a, a walk or whatever, but just that sense of let's do stuff together. Are we faithful in fellowship? Are we faithful in mission? God gave us a vision a few years ago that, that before we even came into the town that we would have a location that would be a safe place for young people to come and be on a Friday night. That they'd be comfortable in and they'd be happy to come to. Are we faithful in that mission? I think we are. I think we have been. The numbers are not important. What's important is are we faithful? Whether it's two kids here or 20 kids here, are we faithful in carrying out the call of God? In June, we were challenged one night by, by a guy that was visiting to, to cast out the net again, to do it again. And Friday night, we did it again. We went back to the park with a barbecue and we did it again. And we encountered a bunch of new kids that we haven't met before. And some kids who were there two years ago, the first night we did it, hooked up with us. We haven't seen them that much in between, but they were down here afterwards playing pool and we had a great time. Are we faithful in doing these things that God has called us to? Do you know the times that I have most felt God's pleasure in this place? Do you know what I mean by feeling God's pleasure? When you're doing something and you just feel the Father is smiling over you. The times I have most felt his pleasure are when we worship and when we do community. Because I believe one of the things that he called us to here was to be a worshipping community. And there are lots of other things that are important to us as well, obviously. But when we do those things, I just feel the whisper of God saying, well done, son. You're doing all right. Keep at it. Because we're being faithful to the calling. We're not trying to be something else because we read it in a book. We're faithful to what he's called us to. Day and night, night and day, let incense arise. Faithful in worship. I don't know about you, but there are plenty of mornings that I come in here and I don't really feel like singing. But I sing, <laughs> faithful in worship. When we do community, we make time on a Sunday afternoon to light the barbecue and to be together. 
I feel the pleasure of God in that because we're doing what he called us to do. We're being faithful. God doesn't do numbers. He doesn't do metrics. He doesn't do data analysis. He took Gideon's army of 32,000 men and he said, Gideon, you have too many men. (laughs) It's not the way we would do it. If you were to walk into a church of 32,000 people with a strategy, would you walk in and say, there's too many people here? You know, God just immediately says there's too many here, gets rid of 22,000 and then gets rid of another 9,700. And when he's got 300, he says, now I can do something. He doesn't do numbers the way we do. Don't import the world's ideas of numbers and success into the church because that's not what God is looking for. He's looking for faithfulness. In Matthew 29, there's a famous parable, or 25, there is no Matthew 29, that would have been funny. In Matthew 25, there is a, a famous parable where Jesus speaks about, again, a master entrusting something to some servants while he was going away. And one servant got entrusted with five talents, one got entrusted with two talents, and one got entrusted with one. And the five-talent guy doubled his talents, and the two-talent guy doubled his talents, and the one-talent guy didn't do anything with what he'd been given. They'd all been given a trust. They'd all been entrusted with something. And the master, when he came back, said the same thing. The guy with the five and the guy with the two. One had got five more, one had got two more. Both heard exactly the same thing. They both heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant. He didn't say to the two-talent guy, you know, you've done well, and if next time you just try this, this, and this, you can be as good as this other fella. No, there's no comparison. Five-talent man was faithful. Two-talent man was faithful. One-talent man was unfaithful. He did not use that which was entrusted to him. And the master was very angry with him. Are you faithful in your calling? Have you ever heard of compare and despair? Have you ever heard of this? Compare and despair? It's the thing psychologists talk about. It's called social comparison theory. And it happens on Facebook. Now, none of you would ever admit to doing it, so I'd admit to doing it on your behalf. You compare yourself to other people. This is why I don't go on very often. This is sad, but I'm just going to be totally honest with you. I I was on it about a couple of months ago, and I read a long post by another Christian leader in Northern Ireland. It was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. It was so well written, so articulate and clear and passionate and true. And all these comments below, ah, brilliant, brilliant, good word, you know, you've put that so well. And other prominent Christian leaders are coming in and saying, you know, couldn't have put it better. And then I started to think, I couldn't write something like that. If I tried to write something like that, nobody would like it. And nobody would tell me how good it is. And I started to do the whole compare and despair. Yeah. That's why social media leads to depression in lots and lots of young people because they're constantly comparing themselves to others. Do not compare yourself to someone else in ministry. Do not compare yourself to another church. Do not compare your ministry to another ministry, to the same type of people. One youth ministry and another youth ministry, totally different. Don't compare. Don't look for success factors. Be faithful. What has God called you to do? What's he called you to do? And are you being faithful in it? He also says that to the Jesus or the master says to the servants that you've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of lots of things. I believe God watches us 
in how we deal with the small things, in how we deal with one child, one teenager, one person, and how we just deal with one person. Instead of spoofing and blathering on about how we want to affect hundreds of people, how do we serve the one? Are we faithful? Because when he sees faithfulness in the small things, then he knows he can trust you with more and more and more. Faithfulness is the character of God himself. I'm nearly done. We read in the Psalms and all over the Bible about great faithfulness. And then it's the fruit of the Spirit. We read in Galatians 5, the the seventh thing that is mentioned in some Bibles, it says faith, but more accurately, it should say faithfulness. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is something you cannot do on your own. It requires community. You go through the fruit of the Spirit and you try doing that without community. You can't. It's impossible. You can't live out the fruit of the Spirit in a cave on your own. And this is about faithfulness to God and to one another as well. And whenever we are faithful, we show people the character of God. There is an area of Glasgow where a friend of mine works, and in a one and a half mile radius of his church, there have been 18 church plants in the last 10 years. Four of them are still there. 14 have shut down. What does that tell people about the faithfulness of God? When somebody comes and starts something and then quits, what does that, what message does that send about God? God gives things a shot and then when they get difficult, he runs. 18 church plants and four remaining. Whenever Paul writes to Timothy, he says about, about keeping the faith and he uses two metaphors. He says it's like a fight and it's like a race. That means it's going to be hard. That means you're going to get hit. You're going to get smacked in the jaw. You're going to take blows and, and discouragements. And also the, the, the analogy of a race, a marathon, this is a long haul. This is a long haul. This is about just bedding down. And I'm telling you, I don't want to look anyone in the eye right now, but as I look around this room, I see people who have just been faithful. <laughs> faithful. Faithful in ministry, whether it's to a large number or a small number. Faithful in just showing up. Do you understand the number of things that get done around here and, and maybe nobody even knows who does it, but it gets done. And if that person stopped doing it, suddenly people would say, oh, why did that stop? Faithful in organizing things. Faithful in praying. Faithful in encouraging. Faithful in, in doing meals and doing announcements and doing breakfast. Faithful in, in, in just being here. Faithful in worship. Faithful in preaching. Faithful in whatever. But this is a faithful house. And a lot of you have just been faithful and standing your ground in the face of tremendous challenge. You've been faithful. God loves it. And God says, well done, because this is a faithless world. This is a world where people are abandoned and they are disillusioned and they are rejected all over the place. And the world needs to see an example of faithfulness. It needs to see faithful parents who don't abandon their kids. Faithful husbands and wives who don't abandon each other. Faithful shepherds who don't abandon the flock. Faithful youth leaders who believe, and this is the quote from Jude's message a, a few weeks ago, that whoever wants the next generation most will have them. That's good. You see that generation of teenagers and young people in this town? Whoever wants them the most will get them. How much do you want them, church? Are you going to let somebody else get them? Are you going to let the the drug dealers get them? Are you going to let the liquor stores get them? Are you going to let the gambling joints get them? 
Who's going to get them? Who wants them the most? Are we going to get to the end and say, sorry, God, Satan wanted them more than we did and he got them? Are we faithful? Faithful in friendship. It's another thing I do love about you. Faithful friendships. You don't feel like you have to tiptoe around anyone that they're going to get offended and run off. You're faithful in friendship. Supporting one another. You can be real with each other. It's a sad world when many people, if they're asked with the, the question, who is the most faithful person you know, they would say, my dog. <laughs> you know? The dog has become the picture of faithfulness. It should be the church. If someone's asked who's the most faithful person you know, they should be referring to the Christian next door. They should be referring to the church down the road who are just consistent and faithful and do what they say they will do and follow the call of God. I brag a lot about you all the time. I do. And the first thing that comes out of my mouth when I'm talking to people and they ask me, you know, how, how's, how's the church? Or they ask about it or I'm maybe visiting somewhere else like last Sunday and people ask about, about church at home. And I, you know, we have many gifts. I don't brag about the gifts. I brag about the faithfulness. I just tell people we have a solid, rock solid, reliable, faithful bunch of people. I brag about it. Being faithful doesn't mean burning out. It doesn't mean working yourself into the ground. It's not some sort of, I call, as you hear me call you to faithfulness in your ministry, don't hear me calling you to burn yourself out and never take a rest and never get a break. That's not what faithfulness means. God will judge us, I believe, on one criterion. Were we faithful? Were we faithful? Are you tempted to quit on something? Have you got discouraged? Have you got exhausted? Have you tried and tried and tried and just had no success? Please realize that that means nothing. It's the faithfulness that matters. It's not the success. It's the faithfulness. God is faithful. Jesus in the book of Revelation is called faithful and true. What one word do we want etched over our lives and over our ministries? I think it's the word faithful. And I think I want to be able to say, I told you loads of times I have this notion in my head, whether it ever comes to pass or not, I don't know, but I do when I'm an old man, if I'm ever an old man, I do want to stand at the top of that town and say, I've kept the faith. I've done what you asked me to do. And I'd love to have a crowd of people around me just say, we, we were faithful. We were faithful. We took the trust that God had given us and we faithfully lived it out. The results are up to him. Amen. Father, thank you for your goodness, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this lesson from Paul, Lord. Thank you that he is a realist, Father, that he does not live in a dream world, that he's honest about what goes on. And even in the face of being deserted and deserted and deserted and deserted and deserted over and over again, he was still able to say, I've kept the faith. And I ask God that you would put on our hearts the determination and the courage and the spiritual fruit of faithfulness. That we will be known as a faithful people, individually and corporately, that we will be known as faithful that we don't quit, that we don't just blow in and do a few things and then vanish again, but that we are faithful for the long haul. May we become known as a community that this town can rely upon. 
Thank you for the faithfulness that's been demonstrated, Father, by the people in this room and by others who can't make it this morning. Thank you, God. Help us to keep going, Lord. Rest us deeply, I pray, over the summer and help us to, to be faithful in a new season in the ministries and in the visions that you've given us. For those who have been discouraged, Lord, for whatever reason, help them to hand it all over to you and to hear you whisper into their heart, I saw what you did. You were faithful. Well done. Well done. Amen.